Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now, your host, Bela Sebraff on The Definitive Rap. Hello, and welcome to The Definitive Rap. I am Bela Sebrow. Thank you to Vin News for hosting our show. We just commemorated Yom HaShoah, where we memorialized the more than 6 million holy souls who were murdered during the Holocaust. Those who are not related to Holocaust survivors may not realize that the atrocities, in fact, continued and is continuing to this very day. Children of Holocaust survivors are still carrying the pain of what their parents and grandparents endured. In fact, experts are saying that even third-generation Holocaust survivors are also still suffering. Today, we have the privilege of meeting Deborah Levison, a child of Holocaust survivors that turned her pain into becoming an award-winning journalist. She tells the story of her parents' ordeals, not just of the brutal dark days of the Holocaust, but also present day. We will be discussing her book, The Crate, which is a true story showcasing the intricacies of the human experience in the face of genocidal horror and the strive for justice. Deborah Levison is an author and publicist. Her life has two parts. She, the first one is in Canada, where she attended University of Toronto and, and the Royal Conservatory of Music. And the second in Connecticut, where in her words, she lives with three children, two doodles, and one husband. Her debut book, The Crate, A Story of War, a Murder, and Justice, is a true crime story with echoes of the Holocaust. Since its release, she has spoken to over 130 audiences across the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. New York Times bestselling authors Lee Child called The Crate impressive and important, and James Rowland said it was a gut punch with such harrowing moments that you have to stop and take a breath. Treat yourself to this journey and be transformed. Other reviewers have called it gorgeous and poetic, heart-wrenching, and a brilliant story. The Jerusalem Post wrote, exquisite. The Crate has received seven literary awards. Deborah, welcome to the definitive wrap. Ayla, thank you so much for having me on. Deborah, I am a child of Holocaust survivors, and um, throughout my childhood, all I heard around my parents' dining room table from discussions with their guests was about the horrors and atrocities they witnessed, experienced, and about the death of their family members. So I could tell the stories, but we're here to hear, hear your story. Without any spoilers, because we want our audience to read it for themselves, can you tell us a bit about your book, The Crate? Sure. So it started with an incredibly surreal phone call. Back in 2010, my brother called and said, sit down, which we know is the great preamble to oh, something yeah, yeah. coming. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, that's um, not a good thing. <laughs> and so it turns out he was talking about something that had happened at our cottage, which is our family lake house in Canada. Uh, about two hours north of Toronto, where I grew up. Mm -hmm. 
And you have to understand that this cottage for us really was a sanctuary. It was very private. It was very secluded in the woods. It was, you know, pristine and innocent. And really for my parents, it was a refuge from their horrible memories. And, and when they built it, they built it by hand in the 1970s, you know, with all their, their blood and sweat, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really did build it as a refuge for them, something that they could build from the ground up that no one would take away from them. Mm-hmm. And so when this phone call came all those years later in 2010, Um, It was so jarring because my brother said that a wooden crate had been discovered and it was nailed very tightly shut. It was sort of shoved between the ground and the the bottom, the floor of the cottage uh, in this sort of angled crawl space um, as, you know, as the ground slopes down towards the water, it sort of goes on a steep incline. And so there was this, this space underneath the floor, and that's where the crate had been discovered. And when it was opened, Bela, it was the most gruesome thing you could ever imagine. And, uh, and it set the wheels in motion for, you know, all these events. First of all, the, the news, the headlines, the television crews all sort of descended on the property. And what was a very private um, escape for us was suddenly mentioned in all the newspapers from coast to coast in Canada because it was now the scene of a murder. And oh my, my brother became the primary murder suspect. Um, and the whole family just felt so first of all, unsafe and terrified. Of that course. Oh my gosh. Um, but also violated that, you know, these strangers had come and trespassed on our property. Um, and I had three young children that I wanted to protect from the horror of the whole thing. Yeah. And my husband and I were freaking out. But the worst part was that my parents, who were already in their 80s at the time, they were traumatized because they never expected to encounter this kind of violence and this kind of evil again in their lifetime. They thought they had left that in the past. I'm not going to ask what was in the crate because I want people to read the book. Um, (laughs) What made you think to tie the crime to the Holocaust? So, um, you know, those those first few days and weeks after the discovery, um, we were all sort of reeling. And it wasn't until after the autopsy results came back and showed who actually the victim was um, that I started sort of getting out of my own head and thinking, okay, well, this is not just about my family and how it affects us. But there's a real victim here, someone who died, someone whose family is grieving. And, um, and, you know, this person no longer has a voice. And I started thinking, okay, they, they need to have their story told. And it wasn't until several months later, when we were grappling with the idea of going back for our annual pilgrimage up to Canada, up to the cottage, 
Um, you know, my husband and I were, were going over it and over it. Are we safe there? Can we bring the kids back? How could we possibly go? We were sitting at my parents' kitchen table discussing this whole thing with them. And to my like huge surprise, my mother said, well, of course we're going to go back. Why wouldn't we go? And my yeah. husband looked at her and said, well, how can you say that after something so violent took right. place? And she said, well, we've lived through nightmares like this before. And so I suddenly started thinking, okay, here I am in this very overprotected little life of mine, living in this very um, safe little bubble in Connecticut with my family. You know, there's, there's no violence that touches my life or has touched my life. But it suddenly made me realize, well, my parents have lived through, you know, the, the utmost in violence, um, probably the most violent and evil episode in all of history. So, um, so I realized, you know, we're looking at a story that is evil in the past, intersecting with evil in the present. And I started thinking, um, you know, this kind of violence and these kinds of crimes don't happen in a vacuum. They happen to real families. And in our case, we were a family of Holocaust survivors. And I knew that for readers to understand the impact of this horror and the impact of the crime on our family, they had to know my parents' histories and the context that they were um, approaching this crime from. Right. In between talking about the murder and the investigation, you weave into your parents' experiences in the Holocaust. Um, how did you learn about your parents' Holocaust stories? So I actually do talk about that in the book. Um, you know, I had the opposite experience from yours growing up. Your parents talked about it as, a, as an everyday thing at the dinner yeah. table. My parents never mentioned it. And the whole time I was growing up, it seemed to me that there was this black shadow over our family, oh. but I never knew what it was. All I knew was that our family was different. So growing up in Toronto, First of all, I didn't speak English when I was little. I started kindergarten only speaking Hungarian. And my mother insisted on dressing me in very Eastern European style right. clothes right. that didn't look anything like the other girls. With the bows, with the bows. Ugh, and the peasant embroidery yeah, course, and, yes. you know, nothing like what the other kids were wearing. Right. And, um, and the foods that we had at home were completely different from what my other friends were having. You know, there was nothing, um, there was nothing prepared, brought into the house. There was no such thing as fast food. Right, we right. hardly ever went to a restaurant. And, um, and, you know, my mother made everything from scratch. And she would make these giant vats of these very mushy stews. Um, and not because she wasn't a good cook. She was actually a terrific cook, but because we didn't have any money. And, you know, these big pots of stew would last for three, four five dinners. Yes. And when my friends came over for dinner, they would look at what she was serving and just sort of grimace. Um, and so there was always this very tangible sense that we were not like the other people. Right. And then you know, there were lots of other um, 
uh, reasons that, that I felt different. First of all, my next door neighbors on both sides would have these big backyard birthday parties with lots of cousins running around and aunts and uncles visiting, grandparents. And I never had that. In my family, we had my two parents, my one brother yeah. and one grandmother. Yeah. And the five of us, that was the extent of the entire family. So I felt like we were this island of five people living in a sea of Canadians who belonged and we didn't. And as far as I knew, all my relatives lived in a shoebox, a shoebox mm -hmm. of photos that I had once discovered in my mother's closet. And, um, and all of those relatives were people that were never discussed. Sometimes their names would be mentioned. And as soon as, um, you know, it would sort of go in one ear and out the other, I never remembered my relatives' names. And to this day, if they're not written down in front of me, I still have a hard time remembering their names, which you know, we can talk about that later, but that's not, um, that's not so unique. I've come to find out a lot of Holocaust survivors' children have that same issue. Um, and, and, you know, there were just so many other clues about things that had happened to my parents, but things I never put together as a child. So, for instance, one time my mother decided I needed a beach rope. And we didn't have money for luxuries like that, but she was right. very resourceful. So she took two towels and she started to sew them together to make me a beach rope. And she cut out a hole for the head and holes for the arms. And I remember standing watching her as she was sewing with these very neat little stitches. And I said, oh, did grandma teach you how to sew? And she said, yes. As a matter of fact, we sat together for hours sewing patches on our clothes. Wow. And I remember thinking at the time, she was talking about the patches, like the ones she put on my brother's blue jeans when he ripped the knees. Oh. And I didn't realize until years later that she was talking about the yellow Jewish star patches oh. that all Jews were required to wear during the Holocaust. Yes. And then, you know, there were lots of other clues to what had happened to them also. Like um, my father, he had a whole set of idiosyncrasies. You know, he would come home from work and he would sit down at the kitchen table and my mother would put a bowl of this stew in front of him and he would lower his head and take his fork and he would gobble up the food so quickly that right. night after night after night yes. he choked. He choked on the food and then he would sort of lean back and try to get air through this big mouthful of food and my mom would jump up and and clap him on the back and she would say something like oh he does that because he was starving and again you know I never understood what she was talking about but in my whole childhood I walked on eggshells you know it just seemed to me my parents were so fragile that I was afraid of saying the wrong thing or asking the wrong question because I always felt like they were so frail they would just shatter and um and so these 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 comments my mom would make these offhand remarks like oh it's colder than the ghetto in here or oh what we would have given to eat this in the ghetto. Yes. And again, because I walked on eggshells, I never asked what right. she was talking right. about. 
And it wasn't until I was a teenager that I started to find out what she had been through. And I was a married woman with children by the time I found out my father's story by watching his um, videotape testimony for the Steven Spielberg Foundation. I watched his video and that's how I found out what he had been through. The crate is categorized as true crime. Is any of the book fictionalized? So I tried very hard to keep it nonfiction. Um, I, I tried as much as I could. You know, I'm human. Obviously, I can't remember every conversation from my childhood perfectly. Right. But I, I tried as much as I could not to embellish anything that they said, to use their words. Um, and in many ways, I think if I had given myself the leeway to make it a fiction, I could have made it a more interesting and not just more interesting, but um, a more fully educational book about the Holocaust. But because I was sticking to their words of their experiences, I wasn't able to tell, you know, all the facts that I learned since then. So now when I speak to audiences in person, I give myself that leeway to talk about, you know, things, for instance, what I learned about Mutthausen. So that was the second concentration camp that my father was in. And he didn't talk to such an extent about Mutthausen, but I can because now I've, I've researched and I've learned quite a bit more about it. And I think, you know, um, by adding all of this context to, uh, to discussions with audiences, that's the sort of critical education that they're, that they're oh, yeah. missing to discuss oh, the yeah. Holocaust. Deborah, how did your parents' experiences in the Holocaust influence your life? Um, I didn't realize how much their experiences had an impact on me until I started writing the book. And then it just sort of, it it started to pour out. I realized how much of my childhood um, had been sort of living as a stranger in a strange land, as this, as this young girl under a black shadow of of violence and evil because my parents were still all those decades later, they were still, you know, um, trying to deal with and process everything that had happened to them and all of their loss come to grips with all of their loss. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm unique in any way, but I felt the guilt of living a very easy life of not having any of the the horrors that happened to my parents, not having any of that happen to me. You know, why should they suffer? And why should I have such a good life? And then there was this sort of unspoken pressure to live, to replace the relatives who had perished. So, you know, to accomplish something, to live a great life because they couldn't live a life at all. All the people who- It's very common. That's a very common reaction of children, of Holocaust survivors. For sure. For sure. I think that's very common. And then there were other things too, like, you know, nightmares or food issues, Um, you know, clean your plate because when we were young, we were starving. And, and, uh, and then again, like I said, not being able to remember any relatives names 
that was a big thing. And I've also realized um, a lot of survivors talk about their relatives in a very distanced way. So I don't say my grandfather or my um, aunt or uncle, um, you know, because I didn't know them as relatives. I knew them as these sort of vague, shadowy people who perished. So I say my mother's father or my father's sister, I, I have that distanced way of describing the relationship. And that also is very common. Right. Wow. Have you met other children of survivors? You mentioned growing up, you know, they're born there in your community, but have you met other children of survivors and do you see any commonalities? So um, when I was young, you know, I was quite a bit younger than my parents, um, friends, kids, my brother, who's 11 years older, he had a lot of peers. And since my parents' whole social circle was comprised primarily of Hungarian Holocaust survivors uh, and their kids, it was my brother who had a lot of friends who were children of survivors and I, I had that too growing up my friends were also children of holocaust survivors really? so I didn't have that sort of okay. um relationship with anybody and again it wasn't until after I wrote the book and started seeking out groups like Facebook groups oh. um where I could speak to other children of survivors uh so it didn't happen until I was an adult that's right right now You've given over 130 author talks in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Um, Would you say that most of your audiences are Jewish? Actually, no. Um, Most are not Jewish. And, um, And it's always a surprise to me because I always... You know, I always kind of go into these presentations if it's to a non-Jewish audience and even sometimes to a Jewish audience. I I always have a little bit of trepidation. I'm always wondering, okay, is this going to be the night when somebody stands up and says, there's no such thing as the Holocaust. I deny it. And so far, it's never happened. The audiences have been so engaged and respectful and and also grateful that they're hearing a personal story like this which mm-hmm. makes me realize how important it is right. to, for the children of survivors to now start telling all the stories yeah. you know yeah. to take up the gauntlet and tell the stories yeah. um you know i'll never forget i was in a church group here locally um where the reverend had come and had asked me to speak to the children of the religious school in this church and um there must have been 75 kids and it was so quiet you could hear a pin drop they were so respectful during that that whole program what are some of the uh predominant themes in the book um well as i mentioned at the beginning definitely evil in the past intersecting with evil in the present. That's one. But also there is um, this theme of fate woven through the whole book. You know, was it the fate of a young woman to die in a very violent and grisly way and to end up in a crate underneath a stranger's cottage in the woods in Northern Canada? And was it my parents' fate to survive when six million others didn't, 
And then was it my fate as a writer, a professional writer my whole life, to have this story sort of drop into my lap so that I could write the book and then go on to do the work of talking about the Holocaust? You know, it, it's just crazy to me that the story sort of dropped into my, my lap mm-hmm. in the first place. Was that my fate? to have that story when I had always wanted to write a book, but I wasn't sure what yeah. to write then. So, um, so that's definitely yeah. uh, one of the themes. Yeah. And then there are all these themes of dredging up memories from the past and, and the ripples that these events sort of send out for generations to come. Um, and it's, it's actually, that's actually a topic I've, I've gone on to write more about. Right, right. Is there something significant about the title of the crate? That was really that that went through my head <laughs> while I was reading it. Yeah, up. well, um, so yes, because clearly there is a very literal crate in the story. We found an actual crate with a murder victim inside, um, but also uh, metaphorically, you know, we we opened the lid, so to speak, of this crate and all these horrific memories came out when we looked into the past. We opened a crate full of very horrible memories and things that needed to be addressed and things that needed to be remembered and discussed. Deborah, why did you write the book? I know you said that it, you know, fell in your lap, but why did you write this book? Um, well, so for two, two equally important reasons, I think for one, to give a voice to the victim, because she no longer had a voice, you know, here we are these days with the Me Too movement, everybody who has been abused in some way, can tell their story, they can yes. talk to the media, they can go to the court, they can go to the press, right. they can, um, they can use their voice and talk about what happens. But in our story, the victim no longer had a voice. And so I thought uh, I could tell her story for her. And at the same time, I just felt how critical it was to tell my parents' stories, to preserve them. Um, we're, you know, here we are with anti-Semitism rising and rearing its ugly head around the world um, in incidents that you know, the Anti-Defamation League, for instance, can't even keep track of at this point. And um, I felt that if I had written down my parents' stories uh, and preserved them in writing, that somehow it would be harder to refute them. Um, and, you know, Holocaust denial also is just rampant, and especially on the Internet. Because oh, of anybody well, that's, all, that's all part of anti-Semitism. Sure. And anyone can say anything anonymously. And there's a huge audience for that. Yes, there is. So I just really Sadly. felt how critical it was, yeah, to preserve my parents' stories. Deborah, are your parents still alive? I have my mom. Thank God. Thank God. Yeah. And um, has she read your book? Um, probably a dozen times. She's, <laughs> uh, she's a big fan, to say the least. Oh, I, I have no doubt. What does she think about it? What does she think about it? What does she think about your book? She, um, she always says, you know, I never thought I would have my story in a book. 
Um, she's She's got a great vocabulary, but also a very heavy accent that she was never able to shape, even though, you know, she left Hungary in 1956. And she still has that very heavy accent. So I think she's a little bit self-conscious about it. So she doesn't right. like to talk to people in English too much. So I think she was very um, flattered by the idea of a book about her life. So are you planning on writing any other books? Anything else uh, <laughs> looming? Yes, actually, my second is coming out in uh, the fall. And it's not, um, it's nothing to do with the Holocaust. It's a fiction, but a lot of the themes of memories being dredged up from the past and victims and how they're impacted throughout their lives. Uh, a lot of the themes really cross over into the second book. I'm looking forward to that. So where can readers and listeners find the book? Well, um, Amazon for sure, anywhere. And the full name of the book is The Crate, A Story of War, Murder, and Justice. And, um, and also my website, www.debbielevison.com and um, bookstores, booksellers, wherever fine books are sold. Deborah, we are out of time. Um, it's a very painful topic. The Holocaust cannot and should not ever be forgotten. The memories of the more than 6 million holy souls must always be kept alive. But never again will the Holocaust ever happen. Never again. The stories must be told. Thank you to our audience for tuning in. And thank you to the news. And thank you, Deborah, for all that you're doing and for your time on the Definitive Graph. Thank you, too, Bela. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Seabrow. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can catch The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.